And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome back to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Eastcast is a monthly delve into the arts, the culture and the community bubbling away in East London, but as always, resonating way beyond. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Pearl Wise and I'm here with Jonathan Holder and some of his band, The Good Thinking, who are going to perform later, and Abigail Tartellan. A Hackney-based author here to talk about her new novel, Dead Girls. May Lee Evans give us a, gives us a tour of a new exhibition at the Beaux Arts Nunnery, and I attend the launch of a new community pub dedicated to Tommy Flowers. Now, if you don't know who that is, all will be revealed later. But first, I would like to delve into the East Coast vaults and play a piece by Nia Charpentier, who we hope will be back with us soon. She took us on a strange audio adventure into pigeon whistling in 2013. My name's Nathaniel Mann. I'm here presenting a project called Pigeon Whistles in Greenwich Park. I'm a resident of Clapton up in Hackney. My project is called Pigeon Whistles, and basically I'm the composing residence at a museum in Oxford called the Pitt Rivers Museum, which houses an incredible collection of, of objects and artefacts from all over the world, from different cultures and, and societies and different uh, time periods. But the thing about them is they're behind glass. They're muted, silenced uh, by the, the fact that they've become precious objects within the, the museum, and they have these curious objects and all it says is pigeon whistles i saw them first about 10 years ago and I've, I've been dreaming about what that might sound like ever since and so when i was asked to do something about aeolian sound it was the first thing that came to mind so what are the pigeon whistles pigeon whistles are, are small flutes which are carried on the tails of the pigeons so as they fly through the air the whistles are, are excited by the by the flight by the air moving across the top um, we have a, a flock of 14 pigeons and each pigeon wears a different note so we basically get a cloud, a chord, which travels over the heads of the audience. Why did pigeons have um, whistles on their tails traditionally? Well, the tradition comes both from China and Indonesia. I'm not sure which started first. In China, it's a tradition that goes back hundreds of years, but we believe that it was initially for to deter predators. So um, the, the pigeons, especially uh, homing pigeons and, and racing pigeons, can be a very valuable commodity in China. So in order to deter any hawks that might want to take, uh, you know, have some lunch uh, with somebody's pigeons, then they're, 
they, they would attach this whistle on as a way of deterring the hunter. Okay. And you've got one of these um, traditional whistles with mm-hmm. you, haven't you? Do you mind um, just describing it? So it's a, it's a made out of a, a dried gourd, so a kind of a small pumpkin. And it, yeah, it's about the size of a, a tangerine, no, a bit bigger, a mandarin, just to be <laughs> pernickety. Um, and then it's got eight little flutes on it, each of one producing a slightly different note. In this flute here, we've got a whole cluster of notes. They're made out of bamboo reeds. I don't, I don't know what the technical term for them is. I can give it a little blow. whole range of sounds but uh, I've created uh, my own ones out of recycled material so I'm using a film pot I tried all different uh, uh, there's a lot of prototypes kinder eggs ping pong balls dog whistles um, and what I've come up with is a f- film pot some lolly sticks and a bit of a Christa Berg record and basically the film pot can be cut down to different lengths and, uh, and I can get a whole octave of different notes from this How did the collaboration with Pigeon Pete come about? I've been dreaming about these whistles for years and it was the first thing that I wanted to do. I, I pitched the work, they gave the, the big yes and they said on oh, the first show's in May. So I had five months at that point but I had no, no whistles, no pigeons, no Pete, no idea of uh, how to make the whistles, no idea of pigeons, nothing. So I, I started scouring the pigeon world for for people who might be interested in working with me. There, there was a point where I thought it wouldn't, wasn't going to happen until I discovered Pete, and Pete is the only man in the country who trains his pigeons to return to a mobile loft. So he uh, decorates a, a rabbit hutch in a very distinctive way. He straps it to the back of his scooter and takes his, his pigeons out with him when he's uh, fishing. Uh, he doesn't release them when they fly back to his home loft. He releases them and they circle above him and come back down to the loft. And there's the difference. That's a technique that's used in Germany, it's used in the States, but no one in England is doing it. And without Pete, this wouldn't be happening. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Peter Petrovich, but um, I'm more commonly known as Pigeon Pete. I had a phone call about six or seven months back by a friend of mine called Nathan that wanted to create some sounds and music and asked me, is it possible to fly birds from a mobile loft anywhere in the country and come back? Me being me thinking, hello, someone's having a little bit of a laugh here. So I said, of course, no problems. And we arranged to meet and everything, and we did. And since then, we've been travelling all around the country flying the birds. And how did you become such an expert in pigeons? Oh, that makes me smile. An expert? I don't know. I've I've kept pigeons for 45 years. It's very hard to explain why I like them. I just find them fascinating. Like some of these ones that I'm flying, they're called Birmingham rollers because they actually spin. And how many pigeons have you got in total? Total, it's the breeding season at the moment, so I'm not 100% sure, but I should say roughly about 250. The pigeon itself was chosen for this project because the temperament of the bird, they're very, to- you know, they're very easy to handle, they're, you know, they're, um, they're, they're fairly, fairly easy to train, they're very calm. You can see they've got flutes or whistles attached to them. I mean, uh, they're not concerned, they're not bothered, it doesn't irritate them. They fly perfectly and everything, so they're the perfect bird to try for this. And do they always come back? Um, 99 out of 100, yes. Obviously you lose some birds because either bad weather or get blown away or you might get a hawk attack or anything, which is nature, which is natural. You can't do anything about that. Just finally, I heard that a sort of average pigeon tried to join the party uh, oh, <laughs> yesterday, yeah. was it? 
Could you just tell me a bit about that? Yes, I was flying my birds yesterday and everything was going fine and whatnot. And the only way I can put it, one of these council house pigeons, you know, came flying around and wanted to join in. So I had to have a few words with him and everything. And he wasn't too happy, so he flew off like. But the rest of my pigeons, being pigeon snobs, was quite pleased about that. So that, uh, Nathaniel Mann, the artist behind the project, is still making all sorts of music and music and sounds um, and won an Arts Foundation Award earlier this year for his practice. He's still using pigeon whistles. Um, so you can check him out. Now, I'd like to welcome Abigail Tartellin, author of Dead Girls, a novel very recently published, I would say last week. Last Thursday. Yeah. Last Thursday. So we are hot off the press. That's yep. very good. Um, and that's on Mantle Books, I believe. Yeah, Mantle Books, um, an imprint of Pan Macmillan. And next year it will be out in paperback from Picador. Excellent. Um, so this is your third novel. It is, yeah. Ha- I mean... Your, so the second novel, Golden Boy, that you published, what, a, a couple, I don't know how many years ago was that? It was actually five years ago now that the hardback of that came out. Um, this has been quite a struggle of a book for me. The first two came pretty quickly. The first one I wrote between the ages of 19 and 21. So, um, And the second, uh, Golden Boy, was written in um, a bit of a flurry in kind of six months of just feeling very inspired. Um, And I knew what I wanted to say there. And this one came very slowly comparatively. But I think it's because it's about, it's in a a female voice. And that was really um, much more of a struggle than writing uh, the other two, which were, and the first one's written from the perspective of a 15-year-old boy, and the second one is about an intersex person, so a hermaphrodite who's 16 years old. So why do you think that is? Just because it's more personal? Yeah, exactly. It's more personal. It feels more vulnerable. Um, I was in a book club on Tuesday and um, they were saying, wow, this feels really a lot like my childhood. Did you, um, what about this that the little girl felt? And what about this that she did? And I sort of, they 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 were asking me why those things were in the book. And I had to say, "Uh, I did them. (laughs) And I felt that. And uh, it's much more uh, embarrassing and scary as a project. Yeah, I can imagine. But also, after, I mean, I can also imagine that writing this um, third novel um, after Golden Boy, where you got this kind of quite um, unusual publishing deal for somebody so young and, you know, you know, being sort of, you had money thrown at you to, yeah. to publish this book and now you've got to kind of follow up. It, it can't be easy. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure and actually it's funny because I, I have lots of people now who say, oh God, I wish I had an agent, I wish I was published. Um, and I'm very lucky to have those things but it is an extraordinary amount of pressure and people do say to you like you should do this you should do that you should write a thriller you should um, write a character a bit like the woman in this book and um, I would say to people writing 
and aiming at entering publishing or getting an agent to appreciate that moment where nobody is telling you what you should do and you can just listen to your voice and follow your instincts. Um, And I think that we often have, um, I I, I do believe in sort of compromise and making things sort of accessible in a way. Um, But I think that we as writers we have the same instincts as readers we're just members of i I've, i feel that i'm like a reader and it's almost like i have to find the correct agent and publisher because there will be lots that are looking for a different deal or a different book or don't think my thing's fashionable anymore and i just know that if i can get it to people like me readers that they'll like it so i think it's like stick with your instincts and appreciate that time so did they give you the time to kind of explore what you wanted to or were they quite hands-on and sort of guided you more um i actually uh just had a real struggle i had a two-book deal with the golden boy publisher and we ended up breaking it because we couldn't really agree on what my next book would be so i found a a new editor now who's absolutely fabulous and she loved um thera the character at the center of this book from the very start so so give us the synopsis okay well in brief uh, so Dead Girls is set in 1999 and it's about two best friends Billy and Thera and um, when Billy goes missing Thera as her best friend uh, you know it's a time of girl power she's young she's 11 and so she has a very black and white sense of uh, morality in a way and she decides like it's up to her as Billy's best friend to find her and then um, really quickly really early on in the book she finds her but Billy's been killed And um, she finds her in a a wood, in a copse, and it's very eerie. And as adults, we kind of know what's happened, but Thera doesn't. And so um, she decides to find out who could possibly want Billy dead and then to hunt down the killer and avenge her death. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how did you even start to kind of do the research for this? Like, what, what... Well, I think the idea, it comes from kind of a sad place in a way, but it didn't end up being a sad story um, because I grew grew up at a time where lots of girls were going missing and it was very much in my consciousness because I was a young girl and they were the same age as me and lived quite near me. And I really wanted to write a book almost for those girls to um, because they're not here anymore and they don't have a voice and they should be here and um, they're just like me and it's just by chance that they they went missing and I didn't and um, so I thought okay if I was going to write a book it's going to be an adult book because I write adult novels but um, it's going to be for them and so children do have this very black and white sense of morality they have their heroes and their villains and so it's a book where the protagonist has the same feelings and she feels that she's the hero there is a villain and she's going to Um, set out to try and find him and um, I I think the point for me is whether she succeeds or not she's um, the victor and uh, she's decided that she's not going to be a victim just because she's a little girl and she's going to go out and try and take the opportunity to sort of um, take an eye for an eye really so in a way um, I I wanted to write about something that's that I feel is really important and quite sad but I wanted to write about it in a way that people could engage with and feel uplifted by your characters are all I mean the three books um teenage or or pre-teen like very young voices is that just easier for you is is it easier to kind of embody 
yeah, a, I, a younger person. I think when I started writing, because I was so young, I didn't. I actually didn't feel that like I could be a writer. I thought writers were, and I was completely wrong about this. But older white men, like in their fifties, and they they were the you know the people who knew stuff. But I actually read a book by Nick Hornby called Slammed, and I thought he's not got this right. It was about a fifteen year old kid, and I thought nah. I know 15-year-old boys way better than this because I'm dating them. So I decided to write a book about one. And um, and then after that, I think there's just a bit of a fascination for me because these people are coming of age. And so anything that's happening in our society is really affecting them and their identity. Like, it, it's such... Kids are... Uh, kids of that age, if you've got a culture happening and, and the, a time that it could only be a five-year period, but what's happening at that time really shapes their identity for the rest of their lives, I think. Like I grew up around Buffy the Vampire Slayer and my sort of values are very much just the values of that program. <laughs> and um, and my mum and the Spice Girls and what was happening when I was between the ages of 13 and 17. So I think that's why that time's so fascinating. So um, you you said that you you didn't think you were going to be a writer. Um, how did you start? Because I think for a lot of people, it's just that starting. It's like they people have that kind of fantasy of like I'm just I'm going to write a novel and then and then never really get to it. But you did. So how did you just get on with it? And yeah, I think I came about it in quite a bizarre way because I just I've always written and um, never really lost that childlike ability to um, go off in my own head and imagine things Um, so I was sort of writing out a story as I as I would always do and then I found it on my laptop and it was about 20 23,000 words and I thought that's kind of half a book so I gave it a go and I finished it and I sent it off to an agent and seven agents and one of them got back to me and picked it up so that's how initially I started writing and then I thought um, I'm from Grimsby I don't have any cash and <laughs> or family money and I was a waitress and I we weren't getting our tips because they were doing that thing where they take them all and give them to the managers and the chefs and I just had no money and I thought look this lady who is my agent is really well connected if I wrote her a book <laughs> that, that could be commercial and um and relevant to a large audience um and i've got things to say so i'll just give that a go and and that was golden boy and as you said it 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 sold very well and um and i do i like to talk about gender so i think it's it's a bit of a time for me i think if i was coming of age in the 80s it would have been a a different thing and much harder but Uh, yeah as you say it is the you know there's a lot of discussion and debate about gender at the moment yeah I think it's a good time to be women in the creative arts I feel very much like the um everything's in my favor at the moment um you're going to read us an extract yes I will um this is a bit from towards the beginning of the book where Thera is being interviewed by a policewoman so Thera is the 11 year old at the center of the book and she's telling the story the policewoman clears her throat Your mum and dad tell us you're Billy's best friend, she says. You remember you spoke about her to the police who came to see you on Saturday night? Well, I'm her best true forever friend. Hattie and Poppy are Billy's best friends, but me and Billy are best true forever friends. The policeman smiles like I'm joking, but Georgie, the policewoman, doesn't. How long have you been best true forever friends, Thera? she asks. Um, since we were babies. And what's Billy like? 
How would you describe her personality? I chew my lip and then blurt out, funny, bubbly and happy-go-lucky. Hmm, you must have lots of fun together. What does she like to do? Uh, play pretend games and draw and listen to music. We like the Spice Girls. Do you have any ideas about where she might be? Says Georgie. I think. We always said we'd run away to London and start a pop group. You think she's run away? Asked the policewoman. Why else wouldn't she come home? I hesitate. But, well, if she had run away, I don't see why she would have run away without me. We do everything together. I could understand if she was mad at me, but... I stutter. I feel like I have to convince the policewoman that we weren't arguing. She's glaring at me so hard. But me and Billy never fight, ever, and anyway, she was fine when I left her in the field. Was she? The policewoman asks. I nod. Yeah, totally. We were laughing, we were playing with the predictor, and... What's a predictor, Thera? Um, a bit of paper that tells you who you're going to marry? The policewoman nods. There are some quick footsteps outside the room, and I hear a man's voice. Oh, uh, Mrs... Where is Detective Waters? They told me she was here. She's in charge of the search and rescue, and she isn't even out there fucking searching. She's interviewing the girl who was with... Do you people understand? An 11-year-old has gone missing. Every hour, every minute, someone could... There are the sounds of footsteps dancing around other footsteps, and Billy's mum opens the door of the office. Georgina, she says, looking at Georgie. Then Billy's mum looks at me. Her eyes widen like her eyeballs might fall out of her head. Thera? The policewoman immediately goes out the door and Billy's mum backs away, but the door's still open and I can hear what they're saying. Why are you interviewing her? I thought you interviewed her the night Billy disappeared. Do you have any new evidence? I'm not at liberty to say. Why? Billy's mum snaps. Then she says, as if she has suddenly thought of it, the police at the quarry said you had her diary. Did you find anything in it? You shouldn't have been told about that, the policewoman says. But Billy's mum says, I'm her mother. Mrs Brooke. Georgie's voice becomes steely. If you accost me like this, I can't do my work, and as you pointed out, time is slipping away from us. There is a silence. When Billy's mum speaks again, she is just murmuring. I can barely hear her. Are you asking her about that man? Rebecca, the policewoman says, calmer now too. I'll have to report anything you say in Thera's presence to her parents. Billy is missing, Billy's mum snaps again, but this time it's different. This time it's more sad than angry. My Billy has been missing for three nights. She is 11 years old. Do you think I care that you report what I say to Francis? This investigation is... When you move to the middle of nowhere, you think you'll never need the police and then, oh God, she starts gasping loudly like she can't breathe. Oh God, help me, Billy. Where's my baby, Billy? She moans. I look at Mr Kent and the policeman. Billy's mum is crying. They just sit there. Why aren't they doing anything? Billy's mum's right. They are useless. Look, we're doing everything we can, Georgie says. What did Thera say? Billy's mum says. And then she adds, this could have happened to Thera, couldn't it? They were there together if she hadn't dared my daughter, if she hadn't made her go up to that man. Rebecca, you're in shock. You don't know what you're saying. She's always been pushy, bossing Billy around, Billy's mum says. If it's her fault, I want to know, Georgina. She made my daughter follow him. She made her go up and talk to that pervert. Get her to tell you what happened. Ask her his name, for Christ's sake. Just do your job and ask her. Billy's mum is shrieking now, and it's like her words have so much anger in them, the weight of it all has broken her voice. I'm sweating in my armpits, in my hairline. Officer Jones, the policewoman snaps, and the young policeman stands up and runs out. Don't touch me, don't you touch me, Billy's mum growls. I feel sick and dizzy. 
Everything sounds like I'm underwater and my cheeks are burning. I swallow down the sick. What pervert? I must have said it quietly because I barely hear myself, but Mr Kent turns to me. Mr Kent, the headmaster, puts his hand on my leg, trying to keep me sat down, but when he touches me, I jump. Georgie, the policewoman, and the young policeman stand in the doorway and look at us both weirdly. I address Georgie. What pervert? Abigail Tartellan, thank you so much. Thank you. So Dead Girls is... It's out now. Out now, yep. in all good bookshops. In all good bookshops. Signed copies in Pages. Pages of Hackney. Pages yeah, of Hackney. Thank you very much. I just, thank you. I'm going to apologise to our listeners. We had a little swear word in there. Sorry about that. That's all right. <laughs> we just always need to apologise. Um, and thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So now... Um, Maylee Evans takes us on uh, to the nunnery at Beaux Arts for their latest exhibition exploring raw materials and more specifically textiles. Hi, so I'm Sophie Hill. I'm uh, one of the gallery directors here at the Nunnery Gallery at Beaux Arts. So the Raw Materials Textiles Show is uh, the second in an ongoing exhibition series we have here at the gallery, all about exploring the industrial heritage along the River Lee. So the River Lee is very close to the gallery and it had a huge impact on the industry that cropped up in the sort of Lee Valley. So um, those are areas that you'd know really well. So Hackney Wick, Walthamstow, uh, Stratford, areas which historically were really important um, for the industrial development of East London. And um, this year we're looking at all of that through textiles. So examining things from silk weaving, the invention of dye colours, things that people don't really associate with this area but had um, you know, a real impact um, on the whole innovation surrounding textiles. I used to sit there watching my dad on the machine and my uncle. But the thing that I got fascinated about, boy, was the the presser. Like where where there would have been a chimney, he had um, like gas burners in there, like four big gas burners with these great big old irons on. I mean, iron's really heavy. He'd have one at a time, and then he would get a wet cloth, wring it out, put it over the material or the coat, whatever he was ironing, and press. And I just imagine he was a massive man. I remember bulging muscles and all the steam. He was always in steam. Must have had a good complexion. I can remember the steam, the smell of the steam on the coats, which was like, um, what can I say, like a new car smell. You know when you get a new car and you've got that smell, that, that reminded me of that. <laughs> My granddad cigars, he always smoked cigars. <laughs> and all the fluff dropping down, all the ash dropping down onto the material. <laughs> but yeah, he always smoked cigars. Always smart, always immaculate, Mars Aida. Had all his suits made at Maxi Cohen's in Allgate. Um, underneath his cutting bench, there was um, uh, where they put all the remaining remnants, but they called it cabbage. Someone came to collect it. Sometimes it was uh, was made into smaller garments or put into other uses, and that was their little bit of bunts. So the better a cutter, 
the less waste. You know, and he was very good cut on those over. A really important element um, of the history and the stories that we examine in the exhibition is um, the stories of the Jewish emigres. So um, huge numbers, hundreds and thousands of Jewish emigres uh, fled to England from Poland, Russia, Hungary, places like that, and brought with them skills um, of tailoring, so pattern cutting um, and you know, weaving and suit making and all of these things and, and set up in the East End because that's where um, the textile industry was and we've got some really nice stories in the exhibition all about, you know, people reminiscing about their grandparents' textile factories. My mother's father, he came here as... He was actually a cobbler but somehow turned himself into a tailor. I don't quite know how. And I think he was obviously a jobbing tailor in that he used to bring work home and everybody in the family had to sort of participate in some way or another to get the work out. So my mother used to do what they call basting, which is basically tacking. But my aunt, she was a dressmaker and she had um, a business, well, I suppose you call it a business, in the East End, in my grandfather's house in a place called Bedette Road. But she had um, a workshop there for as long as I can remember, and I spent a lot of time in her house, in that workshop, having fun. You know, it was one of those things that you sort of remember. I was, I, that room was like a little treasure trove of fabrics and beads and buttons and cottons and threads. But my mother always wanted me to go into an office. She did not want me to be in the rag trade. So one of the most exciting objects that we have in the exhibition is Gandhi's spinning wheel. Gandhi actually came to stay in East London in the early 30s. He was coming over to um, talk about apartheid talks, obviously about India. Staying in some posh hotel in central London was completely against Gandhi's ethos, and so he was invited um, by Kingsley Hall to stay in East London and with, you know, working families of East London. All of these local residents knew exactly who Gandhi was, and it was a huge privilege to have met him. And we've got some of those um, memories in the exhibition um, interviews with those people who met Gandhi often as children. I met a man many, many years ago, and we called him Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi. I remember I had to take some food up to him, and when I got to the door, I opened the door, there was no furniture, nothing. There was this man in the corner, in a white robe, sitting down with crossed legs, Come in, he said. And I liked the man right away because he had a lovely smile and, and I sat down. Even at the time, I thought he was holy. He was laying, sitting there like that. I thought he was, he was God. To me, he appeared like it. And from there on, he's been my man. I've had lots of illnesses. And I says, get me through, Gandhi, just like that. 
wherever he went with him, he would take the spinning wheel to, you know, spin his own clothes because that was part of his beliefs to not wear clothes that were made, you know, from the sweat and the blood of the empire. So he would weave his own garments. When he left, he was kind enough to donate or give um, his spinning wheel to Kingsley Call, who have kept it. So that's, um, you know, some of the workers um, who you're talking about in the... Um, you know, the Jewish tailoring trade, these would have been the guys who were working in the factories. Horrible conditions who then met Gandhi and, and there's this lovely kind of, yeah, cyclical inspiration there. The first real memory is standing on the, um, at the window of the house in Powers Road and looking over to the hall and seeing Gandhi, and that was when um, when he stayed in 1931. My mum used to watch him, um, to walk with him, you know, when they did the long walk around the canal. Quite a few people would go. There was um, Gandhi himself and Miss Slade, Mira Ben, the two bodyguards, I think, there was Muriel, and, and quite a lot of Kingsley Hall members, and they would be quite a company of people walking, you know, quite a, quite a big group. Everybody else was dressed according to the weather, and Gandhi just had his um, little leather sandals and, and a dhoti walk along bareheaded and just as if he was in India. It was fabulous. He was a real um, magical figure. And he came to the nursery school and he spoke to the children and he came to Kingsley Hall and spoke to people, just chatted with ordinary people. He was a very human person, and I think most people who belonged to Kingsley Hall felt they knew him. So one of the most important aspects of the Raw Materials Project is working with contemporary makers. BoArts is um, a studio organisation and we want to provide opportunities for artists. We worked with two really brilliant um, artist makers for this exhibition, Freya Gabby and Sarah Desmarais. Both interpreted um, the heritage very in very different ways, Freya quite conceptually. Sarah's work has focused on the traditional making methods and dyeing techniques um, that were pioneered along the Lee. Um, and she's made two very beautiful dresses, completely handmade. Um, you know, there's been no machine work in there whatsoever. And using traditional dye methods to dye that fabric. I'm very uh, interested in, in slow making. I think that's what drives my work. Um, perhaps it's um, as, a, as a counterpoint to a world in which um, production has become more and more digital and faster and faster and more and more reliant on things that we, we can't understand kind of manually and I'm very interested in my work in, in getting back to things that, that I can make on my uh, kitchen worktop that, that I can use. She's used indigo and madder which were two of the most kind of prolific natural dyes that would be used around this time and, and for one of the dresses she's actually used one of the original Georgian techniques of dyeing so that's um, a mordant used um, through a stencil to sort of make the resist, if you like, so that's um, the bit of the pattern that doesn't get dyed. I cut my um, stencils using this Japanese paper, which is very fine and very robust. I'll, I'll print one now to show you. This is one that's been mended, as you can see. Resist, made out of rice bran and sweet rice flour and um, salt and 
um, slate lime. The flowers are mixed together and then it's steamed for an hour. And it's one of the stickiest things in the world. And she's used designs inspired by the wildlife that's along the Lee today. So, yeah, two really beautiful ways to kind of explore old techniques um, and to kind of, yeah, make, make these traditions come alive for us. So the Raw Materials exhibition runs till the 24th of June. Part of our point for highlighting this heritage is to get people along the Lee and imagining all of um, those exciting industries and things that were invented along the riverbanks, to get them down there and thinking about those themselves. So there's loads of events and opportunities to get involved. We've got boat tours, we've got indigo dyeing workshops, and we've got a community celebration day. Having a look at the Raw Materials website is a really good way about finding out about some of the heritage um, and the stories that we uncovered. So we've got a digital map on there where you can follow the actual geographical points of some of this industry and go to the Lee and, and follow that yourself. Thank you to Maylee Evans for producing that piece. You're listening to East Coast Show on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Don't forget you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at East Coast Show and you can listen again to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search East Coast Show London and everything else is on eastcoastshow.com. Now, we promised you some live music and that has that time has come. We're here with powerhouse singer Jonathan Holder and some members of his band too, The Good Thinking. Hello, Jonathan. Um, could you introduce everyone else who's here for us? Uh, this is um, Andrew Hunt, the uh, supremely talented. And this is um, Paige Proctor, who's uh, on the beat. Brilliant. So the three of you are going to be playing live for us. What um, What's your first track? Uh, it's going to stay away. Take it away.
Wow, thank you so much. Now, that was a pretty big sound with the three of you. How many of you are there normally? Usually nine of us. Nine of you, wow. (laughs) So um, how long has this project been going? Well, um, I mean, we kind of met a little while ago, and it's kind of gradually worked into what it is. So like... um, so I was Jonathan's mentor on an O2 project. Yeah, so I heard about yeah. this. Tell me a so bit more I'm this, about this. Yeah. Jonathan was chosen as a, um, a gifted talent in the UK to tour U, uh, the O2 arenas with Tinchy Strider, Rita Aurora, The Noisettes, Rudimental, Mystery Jets. I can't remember. And I was brought in as a mentor to, um, to help mentor all the artists and produce the tracks. And we kind of hit it off. And after that, Jonathan got signed to a small label, a, a East End label, Mar- Marvelous Records. And they asked him who he wanted to work with, and then he chose me. So we kind of, then we sat down, and Jonathan's really, really eclectic. So we kind of sat down with a blank canvas, and I think um, he asked um, if I got any demos I can bring in, and I brought in like um, a polka and a, uh, <laughs> and a, a ballad with a, with a pots, pots and pans. Okay. And a, Katy Perry this, song and a yeah. old English folk song. Let's <laughs> yeah. really focus it a bit. <laughs> so, how how do you do that transition from mentor to band member? How does that work? Well, I, I got in, I, I'm a producer, and, okay. and I got into it from being a, a writer and a songwriter and a musician. So it it kind of it, it, the project started off. At, with the idea that it would be a big sound and a lot of people involved. We are going to get loads of different co-writers in and have loads of people on it and working. And then through diaries and schedules and clashes and us just actually becoming very close, it, we ended up doing it all ourselves. So it's effectively, it's uh, Jonathan and Older and the Good Thinking is us two. And he played all the black and white stuff. I played drums and uh, bass and guitar and, and a lot of it and we co-wrote it all and did it but we still wanted that big sound and then I met Paige so I roped her in on drums and then it sort of grew from there because we knew we had to take it live so. so speaking of live I think yeah I feel like this is people have to see you live this is how it is it's, it's, a, it's a live sound so where have you got a tour planned what, what's, what's the kind of where can people hear you um, well we're, we're doing a few uh, London dates kind of first so um, we've got the 26th at the Seabright of uh, May of this month and uh, we're playing on the 22nd of June uh, at Paper Dress in Hackney Hackney Central yeah I know it well a lot of East London yeah 
Great. Well, I guess you're on an East London label, so that you've, they've got that network, I'm sure, as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, should we hear another song? Hey. Um, what, what are you going to play us next? We will see. We will see. Okay. <coughs> Just written in a rhyme I've heard that one eyed man is king In the kingdom of the blind They say that having wisdom Is to know that you're not wise But knowledge can be doctored And infected with the lies We will see On what you think it means The sacrifice means different things To holy men and me Intention clouds our judgment And flattery deceives There's clarity beyond the shroud If we set our senses free We will see
brilliant. Thank you, Jonathan Holder and The Good Thinking. And if you want to check them out, just East London and probably UK domination pretty soon. I'm sure you'll work your way around the UK. All social media is at JHTGT. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, so for our final piece, um, I a few weeks ago I went to the launch of a new community pub in Poplar dedicated to a local personality that I had embarrassingly never heard of. Um, and I learned that isn't so unusual. And um, so part of the plan for this pub is to set the record straight. <laughs> They're actually breaking codes. It was incredible. So it's an exciting moment for us, isn't it, Betty? Absolutely amazing. When you think Winston Churchill said at the end of the war, Bletchley Park was the goose that laid the golden egg but never cackled. And it's only cackling now, really. That's 40 years on. An opportunity arose on the Aberfeldy Estate in East London to take over an empty shop and turn it into a community pub. I'm Gary Hunter, I run the Fitzrovia Noir Community Interest Company and we like showing artworks in places that are unexpected. We don't like galleries, we like putting the artworks on the street. We looked into the local history and discovered that a little-known but very influential engineer called Tommy Flowers grew up here. He went on to design the Colossus machine at Bletchley Park which had a huge effect on curtailing World War II by two or three years. The first thing you'll notice when you approach the pub is a big mural of Tommy, based on a photograph of him in the 1940s. So we had to ask his son, Ken, what his eye colour was and also his hair colour, because we only had black and white photographs. So the mural is an example of spray paint puntillism, which means that the artist Jimmy C, he does lots and lots of little dots, which make up quite an abstract pattern when you're close to the piece, but when you stand back, you see the, the whole work. Jimmy's probably best known for the Bowie mural he did in Brixton in 2013. Uh, that's Tommy Flowers' son there, just arrived. Which one? The one in the striped shirt standing in the middle. Ah. That's very nice. I'm Kenneth Flowers, I'm Tommy Flowers' son, and I've uh, been invited here for the opening of a pub named in his honour, which I'm told is one of the few pubs in the country named after a commoner. He got an MBE, but no title. So to have a pub named after him is um, the ultimate accolade, I think. What was he doing after, as you were growing up? He went back to work in the post office. He started out working on a way to automate telephone exchanges. Uh, It's strange, strange to think that in the 1930s, if you wanted to make a telephone call, you had to call up an operator in a telephone exchange, tell them the number you wanted. A lady would then, usually a lady, would take a plug out from your line and plug it into the next line, and that's how you made a telephone call. And he was working on a system whereby you could amazingly dial your own numbers. And uh, it was rather ironic in that a number of my mother's friends were uh, single ladies who worked as telephone operators, so his work was more or less designed to put them out of a job, but uh, I don't think he ever told them that. see the Colossus Memorial window, that's by Scottish artist Tom Chadwin. So that really represents the mechanics of Colossus, how it was actually designed physically. So the story goes, Tommy used a couple of bedsteads and some of the old mechanical parts from the post office exchange he used to work with, he was a telephone engineer. 
Unfortunately, nobody really took him very seriously at Bletchley Park. Uh, him being from a more humble background than them, son of a bricklayer. Uh, they were kind of Oxbridge academics, but he managed to really convince them that it was worth doing so. Just getting on for 75 years ago in late 1943, Colossus was unveiled at Bletchley Park and it ended up being about maybe 10 or 12 machines there. We're here because of the pub, the naming of Tommy Flower. He designed the first world's computer, and we worked on that computer. R- Reenie and myself, we were there, code-breaking at Bletchley Park. Is that right, Reenie? Oh, yes, we were working on the world's first computer. That's why we've uh, come here today. Well, obviously, Tommy Flowers is such a, a VIP in our lives that uh, we're delighted to be here, and that's better now to, as the opening of this... Um, Tommy Flowers Pub is absolutely incredible. It's always niggled us virtually, but who gets the credit always is Alan Turing. But of course, Alan Turing was an incredible, incredible man, but he did not create the world's first computer. And so, of course, we've been, you know, delighted to have this here now because this is the truth is out. Tommy Flowers is a name that has got to be remembered and that every child in the, in the country, in the world, ought to know Tommy Flowers, but nobody seems to know. So we're seeing justice. Everyone's heard of the Enigma cipher. There was another one, the Lorenz cipher, or the Lawrence, as we should call it. And it was much more complex than Enigma. It was so complex and the breaking of it was so significant that they had to keep it secret for decades. I'm Stephen Fleming. I do the PR for the National Museum of Computing. And I'm here today at the Tommy Flowers pub because it's a terrific bit of outreach about Tommy Flowers, a person who was brought up in this area. So it wasn't until 1975 that we started to get an inkling of what was going on. The Lorenz cipher was used, Hitler could communicate with his generals, with his high command. So these were ultra-top-secret messages about the strategy of the war and what was going on. This was cracked by Bill Tutt at Bletchley Park, and then it was being broken by the linguists, who could take a very long time doing this because it was a very difficult job. And Tommy Flowers was asked if he could speed up the process with a machine, and he created the Colossus computer, which meant that breaking these messages changed from weeks to hours. So suddenly, people at Bletchley Park were reading Hitler's messages perhaps even before Hitler was reading them. And this made a huge difference in the war because from the 5th of February, 1944, they were were watching what was going on between Hitler and his generals. There was a big lead-up to this on D-Day, so there's extra confidence given at D-Day because they knew what Hitler thought, and they knew that what Hitler thought was what was going to happen, by and large. So Tommy Flowers' work was hugely significant in this. He produced the first Colossus in February '44, and then by the end of the war, there were 10 colossi working 24-7, looking at all these messages and knowing what was going to be happening next almost. We didn't know about the Colossus computer until 1975, when we got the first information about it. And even then, we weren't quite sure what it was all about. And it wasn't until the early 2000s, with the release of the Tunney Report, that the general public could put together the picture of what was actually happening. Part of the reason it was kept so secret for so long was because it was so important. And a lot of the principles being applied then are principles that are still very much alive today. So there, there was a lot of interest just in keeping that quiet, keeping that away from the public. And yet... Here we have the Colossus computer. The Americans thought they had invented the first computer, first electronic computer. They got a bit of a shock in 1975 when they heard about what had been happening at Blessley Park. 
even when the Soviets invaded Germany in the Second World War, they got hold of a lot of Lorenz machines and were using them until the early 60s with no idea that the British should crack the code. So it became quite important in the Cold War as well. So we really wanted to put a, a piano in here. We thought it was so important in the heritage of the East End, you know, rather than having a, a jukebox or pipe music. We just think it's very important to have a live instrument in the pub. So come through. We've uh, created a bar from what was left of the florists. We moved the bar across, but we also kept the stepped wooden pieces that they used to use to display the flowers on. We used that as seating. And then we put the bar in the corner. We've installed some, some old postage stamps, which links into the other part of the post office in the 1940s when it was both telephones and, and mail. If you come through to the back... This is the Scottish Room, as it's being called, or the Snug. So what we've done is we've put a lot of maps of Scotland on the wall so people can then locate where they're from or where the streets around here are named after, you know, Aberfeldy. It's got, a, it's got a pin on it. And also uh, Carradale and Balfron are very small villages in Scotland. They've got a couple of big tire blocks named after them. So that's this room, which was once used as a GP surgery, hence the ephemeral rescue from hospitals and turned into artworks. This is a, is a very famous in Scotland anyway, as Willie is a 1940s uh, strip cartoon character. So that links into the era when Tommy Flowers was working on Colossus in the mid-40s. It's a timeless kind of look at the, a naughty child with a conscience who sits on a bucket. And at the back here we have a, an open area. We're having a barbecue today. Uh, we're going to have a lot of... Uh, workshops and spray painting sessions out here and stuff so it's got a lot of possible uses this place really we do miss the community because people don't talk like they used to you know so it's nice to have something like this that you can sit and talk to people so this is the tommy flowers pub 50 Aberfeldy street in poplar e140nu please come and see us thursday and friday from five in the afternoon and weekends all day from 12 noon saturday and sunday It's time for us to say goodbye. Eastcast will be back soon on Resonance 104.4 FM with more sounds and stories from East London and beyond. And in the meantime, you can find everything on eastcastshow.com. Um, to play us out is a tiny excerpt um, from Jonathan Holder and The Good Thinking. Um, so thanks for listening and join us again next month on Eastcast. So much harder than